I'm Lauren. Hello, I'm Sarah. And welcome to Montalino Mama. Welcome back to Multilingual Mamas. Today we have with us Dr. Joseph and Karina Collentine, who are of course multilingual parents. But their situation is unique in that their children are adopted. The Collentines are also linguists, like Lauren and I, and professors of Spanish uh, at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. Welcome both of you and thank you for being with us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So tell us about yourself and your language background. What language you spoke growing up, when and how did you learn this languages and other languages? I'm the typical American who um, started, um, I needed an easy class for my senior year in high school. And so I took Spanish. Um, and so um, somehow that turned into changing my career from, uh, I was gonna study accounting to then I went on a study abroad experience in my sophomore year when I was at University of Northern Iowa. And uh, it all um, either went uphill or downhill from there um, that I went out <laughs> to get a PhD in, in, um, in Spanish. But Karina and I have something in common in the sense that when I was doing my, my undergraduate, um, long story short, here at Arizona State University, um, uh, was that um, I lived with um, a bunch of guys who were from the Caribbean. So a bunch of guys from the, uh, from Puerto Rico, and then a couple were from, from Cuba. And so from there, I made a strong connection with, with the Caribbean. Um, I didn't meet Karina though, until I went to Texas. So um, why don't you, why don't you um, give us your story, Karina? Okay. So I was born to an American father and a Danish mother in Virginia. And then I moved to Puerto Rico when I was three. So as the firstborn, my mother taught me Danish um, and my uh, grandparents would tell, would tell, they're deceased now, would tell the story of um, me coming to visit and speaking only Danish and then my father finishes the story by saying that then when, you know, my mother would bring me back after a few weeks visiting in Denmark, I couldn't speak English anymore. Um, so definitely when I was very, very young, I was dominant Danish and English. My father doesn't speak another language, so we spoke English at home. But when I was just with my mom, she spoke to me in Danish. Um, then, of course, when I was three, we moved to Puerto Rico, and when it was time to attend school, I always attended Puerto Rican schools, and so the language of instruction there was in Spanish, and of course, if you had friends, you had to speak Spanish, and so then slowly the Danish faded away, and the Spanish became dominant, so I consider myself bilingual, completely bilingual, um, and so then when I finished um, well, when I was in Puerto Rico and my family knew that we were moving to uh, the United States I, to finish high school, I said, oh, well, to get into college, I need to have a second language. Okay, so let me study French. Never thinking that Spanish was considered another language or a second language, you know, outside because it was just so common to speak both. So I studied French and it was my minor in college. Um, and then in graduate school, I got interested in, um, after meeting Joe, um, Brazilian Portuguese. And so together we lived for six months in Fortaleza, Brazil, um, Brazil for some time. And so 
Uh, now I would say that I'm most fluent in English and Spanish and then Portuguese followed pretty quickly after that and then much less fluent in French, which I never really mastered the sound system. Um, and then Danish is is way, way limited proficiency for me. But when I get to Denmark and visit with my relatives, after a few days, I can pick it up and understand most of what's being said, but my production skills are, are really low. Well, that is quite the story. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you guys now tell us a little bit about your children, how old they are um, and what languages they speak? Um, Adriana is our eldest. She's a couple of weeks away from turning 22. Um, she is an undergraduate student at the university where we teach. She's studying graphic design. She um, speaks primarily English um, right now, is very heavily English dominant, but we continue to speak Spanish with her and her sister consistently. We don't speak English with them, um, but she's much more English dominant now. However, when she was younger, we only spoke to them in Spanish as we do now, and I took the opportunity to teach them what they had learned in a particular grade. I would then teach them in the summer between one grade and the next in Spanish what they had learned. So, you know, they finished first grade and they learned how to do math and, you know, spell and those kinds of things, basic science. I would then teach them that in Spanish because I felt that was the only way that they could maintain their proficiency in Spanish because they had both started kindergarten without knowing much English at all. Like maybe thank you or hello, you know, very, very limited proficiency in English and that quickly changed. But to maintain the Spanish, I taught them how to read and write and I would have them write um, thank you letters or, you know, letters to the grandparents. They don't speak any Spanish, you know, dear grandpa who lives in Iowa, Joe's dad, <laughs> they would write, you know, in Spanish, you know, querido abuelito, and then write in in Spanish because it was a way to make it more real. Um, of course, they got a little smart after, you know, a little while ago, wait, he didn't speak Spanish. Why are we writing this letter in Spanish? Um, and the other daughter, Joe, you can jump in. She has a minor in Spanish, but Joe, you want to talk about Elisa? Well, I, I think that, um, hers is the same situation. Um, the, the young, the oldest one, and they're only 10 months apart, um, did live um, her first year in Guatemala. And so she um, was pre-verbal when she got here, meaning she spoke a lot of words that were indecipherable, but it was clear that she responded to Spanish very quickly, at least from, from my perspective, she, she did. She, you know, she, there were basic things that she could easily understand that she needed to do. And Karina and her, because Karina went to Guatemala to go. Um, um, Finalizing yeah and so the other one um her her our youngest daughter she arrived when um she was six months old so she was not verbal at all um and actually as a i, I listened to a couple of you guys podcasts there i was curious to find that you guys have information on sla and acquisition in general and i thought that was really um, a great service you guys are doing and so what um, was what's surprising to me is, is how that six months makes a makes a huge difference, um, a huge difference. That the the oldest one probably 
at least from my perspective, as originally being a monolingual speaker, um, from her, the older one having that six months, it seems that she feels much more comfortable in her Spanish speaking person than the other one. So I don't know if Karina would have the same perspective, but. And, and I agree with you. I just think the second one is more proficient um, yes. in Spanish. And so, uh, you know, she's, she's able to use less English when she wants to communicate as opposed to the eldest needs more English to communicate. Um, right. Particularly with vocabulary is where uh, they're both weak, but the eldest is weaker. What was, what was really, what I really admired about what Karina did was, well, we, where we, we lived in, in Arizona in, uh, in, in quite a small town. There's a place called Cottonwood, Arizona. And um, there's, I would say that there's a huge migrant population there that comes from very small cities in um, Sonora, Hermosillo, which is the state just south of us here in Mexico. So why is that? Is that we really were able to shelter our daughters from any English whatsoever. All the um, babysitters that we had, for instance, were almost no English. I would actually say no English at all, right, Karina? Up to a certain point. And then Karina did some super cool things too. And that was um, what's interesting. So Karina's, Karina's research perspective, one of them was on um, input. So, um, so they would watch all the DVDs um, uh, in Spanish and we scoured the world for DVDs in Spanish. And we're talking, um, you know, things like, uh, movies, um, Dragon Tales, um, Los Dragones, you know, with, and they still remember the song. And so they would watch them because Karina had a um, hour commute to work. She worked in a place called Prescott, which is an hour away from where we are. And so they watched these movies going there and coming back. And then Karina had songs. Uh, we're able to, you know, and then the last thing, which was super cool, I thought of, I really admired, which was, is that she read to them voracious every day. And I would say maybe an hour and a half in Spanish from the time that they were one. She was amazingly disciplined in, do, in, in, in doing that. Um, and it worked. I mean, they were, um, we were told, I think when they went to, to you can tell us, Karina, what stories you have, because you had to deal with the, uh, with the preschool teachers, but you know, that we had ruined them for life. And uh, no, they didn't say that. They did. One doctor, one pediatrician even said, uh, you know, um, they'll get confused. So, you know, because they'll be going to school in a few years, you ought to start speaking English. And of course I had a PhD in second language acquisition. So I said, uh-huh, sure. Great idea, thank you. Like I tried to do as a good model parent, never argue with somebody. Um, and then I would just go back to out the door. Hey, que quieren hacer hoy? Vamos a comer mantecado. And we just carry on with our life as normal. And neither of them picked up um, Brazilian Portuguese or French. You didn't decide to? No, okay. no, we didn't. No, no, no. We, we really were focused on the Spanish part because we said to ourselves, knowing and even when when we were raising them I don't know that a lot was known about heritage there wasn't even any research on heritage speakers to speak of but we did say to each other 
there is one thing that's for certain that's going to happen here is that at some point they're going to be much more dominant in English. So the longer that we can ride this horse, you know, of being in Spanish and, and, uh, you know, sheltering them from it or, you know, making as hard for on them as possible to not learn English. We knew that eventually um, that there might be some, um, scholastic problems at the very beginning, you know, where they might, they might be slowed down a little bit, but it was clear, at least to me, I don't know, I can't, I guess I can't speak for Karina entirely, but it was clear to me that, um, all the kids we saw, well, Karina had said something really interesting when she went down to Guatemala. And, um, so maybe you guys know this, but like in some countries in Latin America, um, they let kids use the uh oh a bottle for longer period of time um and someone and, and i think karina's brother went with her i don't know the complete story but i'll make up a better one and that is that um that they they that someone karina or the brother asked why is that kid still on a, on a bottle okay and then i guess someone said something along the lines of well you know look at all these 20 year olds out here i don't see a single 20 year old out here here in Guatemala City that's still using a bottle. So I think that they're going to be okay. So that was our perspective on, on English, was that we didn't know any of these kids that grew up um, in the U.S. that didn't end up speaking speaking English, you know, leaving the scholastic thing aside. No, I do, I do want to ask for a clarification. So both of your daughters, uh, you, adopted, you adopted them directly from Latin America, is that right? Yes, both from Guatemala. Uh, the eldest came home in the month of May in the given year, and the other child who was six months came home in the month of September. So the eldest was only with us for three and a half months or so before she became a big sister to the second child. Wow. And you agree from the beginning that you were going to do Spanish, right? Between each other, I'm assuming, and to them? Yeah, that was interesting you say that because... Um, even though we had a lot of friends who um, spoke Spanish, you know, and when, as you guys know, when you're doing your, your PhD, you meet people from all over the Latin American world and from Spain. And so we had this situation where um, we could speak to each other in Spanish, although um, we knew each other in English. So, and it was easier for Karina to, you know, speak Spanish to me, but for me, it was a mental sort of obstacle to speak Spanish to her. Mm. Um, I don't know why, but that's just the way that it was. Um, it was like, I could speak Spanish to everyone else, but to her. So, but then we got over that with the kids. We totally got over that with the kids. And that's when, um, you know, the things that like that, 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 you know, Sada that, you know, in, in Spanish and that, that, that Lauren, you know, in English, the everyday sort of language, I did not know that. I didn't know how to say diaper. I didn't know how to say change your diaper. I didn't know how to say, sit there and be quiet, please. <laughs> or, Give me a minute or I need a timeout or you need a timeout. Um, all these small things that, um, you know, that I really didn't know. You don't get, even if you go abroad, right? you really don't hear those conversations. And I mean, you're not around babies. It's a different domain. Well, I'm wondering, Karina, you got that in Danish, didn't you? Yes, but 
But you know how, you know, families in Latin America and Spain, probably the same, you know, my friends would have younger siblings that they had to take care of. So that wasn't difficult for me to pick up those words. And I want to add my piece to the story is that I don't remember consciously saying, oh, I'm going to speak Spanish to the children. It just was, um, Adriana's is the eldest, her adoption case. Um, was delayed some because of some various things out of our control. And so I started journaling to her and it didn't dawn on me until, you know, weeks into this journal that I had been writing it. I'd say, querida Adriana, I would start writing in Spanish. It didn't dawn on me till later. So it wasn't a conscious decision. It was more, this is just what you do. Um, And it just flowed naturally that way. In your... In your head, you were already talking to her in Spanish. Correct. Yeah. I think that's interesting because you seem to be the more bilingual, and I'm saying bilingual with quotation marks, but uh, I think it was the same for my husband. He grew up in, as a technically as a heritage speaker of English in France, and the, the home language was English, but he had zero issues deciding that he was going to switch to French at home. And he doesn't have that book up in French at home, but he was just like, I can choose, I choose this. And he has had no issues whatsoever. I don't think that's the case for, it wouldn't have been the case for me or for Lauren or Joe. Like it's so much harder on your side to have to make that conscious switch and do this. Yeah. And for, at least for, for my perspective, it, it, it utterly changed my life that now that, now that I'm, you know, um, over 30, um, (laughs) um, now that I'm, now, now, now that I'm um, an adult, um, that, um, that, that there are now, you know, I mean, the story of being in high school and going to ASU and this journey that I've been on, um, you know, that was 17 years, oh, I was 17 years old and I'm 59 now. And so there are so many aspects now of my life that have nothing to do with English. And it's just really, really odd for having grown up so monolingual. Because I grew up in Iowa, and it, that even at that time, you know, right now there's a very large, just like North Carolina, for instance. When we lived there, there were maybe you know, a hundred or so parishes, you know, that were Catholic parishes. And then my understanding now from the the census data is that the Catholic parishes there are 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 are, are huge in number now. And that's the way I, Iowa was the same thing. It was absolutely monolingual, absolutely uh-huh. monolingual. And now it's, you know, it, it, it's a mix. So um, that for me has just been a really weird and a, a cool journey journey to be on. So like, you know, when we have uh, moments of really, really um, high moments of happiness with the daughters, and then there are those other moments um, that others have experienced during, you know, quarantine here. Um, it's Spanish, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's so that's... That's for me as growing up a monolingual. That's been very. Um, I think I've benefited more from the situation than the other three. So, <laughs> so is there any any way that you think your daughter's being adopted has made your situation with bilingualism unique or different than other parents? Well, to be honest, when we started looking at uh, the adoption situation. Uh, at the time, so that was in the late 1990s, right, early 2000s, um, 
we at the time there were it was possible to do an international adoption with children from China, with children from Russia or with children with Guatemala for whatever reason those were the three primary countries from where you could adopt children. And so we immediately said, well, Guatemala is the option for us because we can, we have so much to share and we can help, you know, integrate um, into their lives and they into ours easily, successfully. We didn't speak Mandarin or any of the other languages spoken in Chinese, didn't know much about that culture. Um, same with Russia. And so for us, it was an easy choice to select children from Guatemala because we had so much in quote in common. Um, now that being said, uh, the dialect of Spanish that our daughters speak is the Puerto Rican dialect because that's the one that I know. Um, and so, you know, there probably are words particular to the Guatemalan dialect. I just don't know what they are. And so therefore they don't know what they are either. Um, but that's what I can say about that. I would say that um, it's what, what I find is interesting is that, that, so it's obvious that there's a um, ethnic difference between us, very obvious. Um, and that became obvious to them, I think, as, as they got older too, as well. Um, so, but um, we know of some other parents, we're not like in a big, I would say like, we're, we're not one of those people that are in a, in a large network of families that have adoptive children. Um, but what, one thing that strikes me having spoken with the other adoptive parents is that um, our daughters, they, you know, maybe, maybe when they were, when the oldest one was really young, you know, she might make mention of her, of her biological mother. Um, but the issue doesn't come up at all at this point. And it makes it at all. I mean, and they have no interest in at least the 2021 of going back to Guatemala. That could change in four or five years. Right? We completely understand that. But it's not like they're sort of waiting to pop out. And, it, and it's because they live in a very interesting situation. They live in Arizona. There's tons of Hispanics here. Okay. And one last thing that I've noticed just as of late, because they're 2021 in calls right now, is that even though they um, speak Spanish to each other all the time, that's their main language uh, that they still speak each other in, and they speak only English to their to their friends, I've noticed that a lot of their friends um, still tend to be, um, that they, they, they sort of gravitate towards Hispanics, even though that they speak English with those, with those Hispanics. I don't know if Karina um, agrees with that or, or not, but that's at least sort of my observation. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I have always felt like we did a, we were successful as parents because they speak to each other in Spanish. That to us is the measure of success of our experiment at home. And they do so in public. So if they only did so in private, then hmm, maybe not so successful, but they do it at Target. They do it when they're out with, even with their friends, you know, and, and they know that no one else understands Spanish. They will speak to each other, you know, like, hey, you know, you, you've got, you know, a paper on your shoe, you know, whatever these things that girls would, or sisters would help each other out with. Um, 
you've you've got lipstick on your face you know those kinds of things they would do that to each other in spanish in front of everyone and to me that's the measure of success of what we did um i want to add something there to what's what's what was interesting as a father um because I only got involved in arguments if um, it was to my um, advantage. Um, and so, uh, the, just kidding. Um, that um, it was interesting to listen to them. You know, you know when when they're adolescents and they're twelve and thirteen years old, um, they tend to have no inner voice. Let's put it that way. Okay, like everything comes out that's in there that occurs in them in their head. So at any rate, um, sometimes Karina and the daughters would have. Let's call them disagreements, okay? And they, they might say something like, um, they'd be arguing in Spanish, obviously. But then, you know, the one might say something snarky. You know, the daughter would say something snarky in English, like, um, you know, oh, that's just so stupid, mommy, okay? And then, um, and then maybe five minutes later, Karina might come back with saying something equally as snarky, just jumping in English and saying it to them, and the, and the one daughter, the, the youngest daughter, for some reason would have this violent mental reaction to yes. Karina, even, even daring to say anything to her in English. And she would go, no me hablen en inglés, mami. And she would just get so mad for some reason. Maybe you guys, you know, haven't studied this more. She would get so mad that Karina had the unmitigated gall to say anything to her in English. Um, it was, it just broke all the rules for her. Wow. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah, I, yeah. That was out. Mommy could not. Do that. Mm -hmm. that they talk to each other in Spanish. That's, I don't think that's very common in the U.S. at least. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, for sure. But you guys, you guys already touched on what I'm about to ask right now, because this is done a great job and they definitely identify uh, as Hispanic and they love their language. What about the culture? What were you able to give them to kind of connecting with their culture? So on that front, of course, we adopted uh, some of the traditions that um, I know from Puerto Rico. Um, but I, I think it's probably a hodgepodge mix of things. So some mm -hmm. of the traditions were maybe a little Danish and some were certainly American and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I would, I would say that maybe the culture came through um, via the language. I mean, people always say you can't separate language and culture. And at least for me, maybe that's how um, it came across. Just um, the, the, what you value and, and how you, I don't know, how you approach the world was very much from, I believe, to be a more Hispanic type of way, but yet integrated with some American types of elements. And so I think, I don't know if they associate more with being Hispanic. I think they do with the language, but I'm not so sure that they would say that's true for the culture. Um, I think yeah. they, uh, they are more, approximate to American culture than to Hispanic culture. Um, and that may be because of neither of us having 
the Hispanic background inside on, on the parents' side, right? So it so happened to be that my family, which was an American father, a Danish mother, my brother born in Puerto Rico, and me, grew up in that Spanish-speaking country, but we didn't necessarily follow the customs of Puerto Rico at our home. We followed the Danish ones or the American ones or a combination of those. And so I think that kind of carried over down to their generation. Um, I don't know if you have a different thought on that, Joe. I, what I think it happens with, with them is that I think, um, so what they're missing is that sense of the larger Hispanic family. We completely understand that. You know, they don't have any, they don't have a comadre, they don't have a compadre and that, you know, that sort of, and their cousins, they don't consider their cousins almost as brothers or, or whatever. Um, but they do live in Arizona. And as, you know, as soon as you leave the house in Arizona, especially during these particular times, um, the color of your skin defines who you are. It doesn't matter how you talk, whether you speak in English or in Spanish. And so I think that they're they're very well of very well aware of having a, a Hispanic identity, and I think it shows up um, in a number of different ways. You know, Karina was saying that if they're out and you know together in Target, for instance, they'll speak Spanish to each other. I would submit to you that in some states here in the U.S., um, if they were to do that, in some states here in the U.S., they wouldn't do that if it's a very you know, um, uh, mono in some of those monocultural areas, I don't think that they would do that. So I think by by their clear appearance that they're Hispanic, um, that 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 defines them completely. So um, and that's just by being Hispanic, living here in Arizona. I think even here in northern Arizona. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what kind of support exists in the community for Spanish? Was there a community school or a bilingual school? So uh, they attended, when we moved to Flexstep, the eldest was entering fourth grade or third grade and the youngest was entering second grade. We put them into a trilingual school that had Navajo, which is the Native American language of the tribe in this area and Spanish. So there was a Navajo English or Spanish English um, situation. Of course, they went into the Spanish English one. And so they only accepted them because I had done all of this teaching of previous grades in Spanish. So they could read because by third grade, you need to be able to read. So they could read in English and Spanish. English they had learned in you know school and uh, Spanish I had taught them. And so they were able to integrate into you know that school and they finished through seventh grade in that bilingual school. And then they went to the um, English speaking, although tons of Hispanics and Navajos as well, enrolled in the local middle school and then the high school. That's so awesome. But it's, it, you know, we do live in a, but Flagstaff, Arizona is very different from Phoenix and Tucson. Flagstaff is very monocultural. Most of the Hispanics whose who's residents in, in Flagstaff go way back, do not speak Spanish. Um, it's starting to change because more people from Southern Arizona are moving here. Um, but it's it's very much very different from the rest of, of Arizona. So, but what's interesting is that 
they um, the support is there at a social level in the sense that like take an example like if they had a friend who was like I remember one of my daughters had a friend um, in when she was doing cheerleading and the 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 one one of their friends um, grandmother would come and, and and you know visit the practices so and this daughter this this young lady would speak to her grandmother in, in Spanish because. She only spoke Spanish. And, uh, and so, you know, our daughters would readily sit there and talk, you know, among, with them and in Spanish. So it, 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 it's like that, you know, it was, it's never been artificial, even outside, you know, outside of, of the home. And then with our colleagues in the department, they would always speak Spanish. So there's somebody from El Salvador and somebody from Venezuela. And so they would just, it was just what you did. You know, when you talk to these people, you spoke Spanish and... And that you, you didn't have to go through a mental step of what do I do now? It was just what you did. But that's because they grew up with, you know, these people as our colleagues, right? Um, when they had to come with us to the university or whatever, you know, we spoke to those folks in Spanish. So therefore you spoke Spanish to them. No, I think the fact that they speak Spanish with each other, it's great. And that kind of shows uh, they have a good attitude towards Spanish. Um, have you ever asked them directly, what's your attitude towards Spanish or bilingualism, right? What's, how do you feel because of the way you were brought up? I don't remember uh, ever asking that. We haven't asked them that. Um, I think only because, I don't know why we haven't asked them, um, but it might be a very interesting conversation. Um, I think that if we ask them, they would say, I don't know, Joe, what, what do you think they would say? Well, if I could have stayed out late longer, then I wouldn't have cared either way what language you spoke. If you'd allowed me to X, Y, Z, and if I hadn't gotten in trouble for A, B, and C, then I think that would be tied more to the life experience than to language. But I don't know, maybe that's having been the one that had to say, oh, you need to be home by X hour at that event. I was more the one that did that than Joe. So maybe that's what I'm remembering. I, I would bet that that sense of appreciating it may show up, you know, um, later, later on down that because they do have a positive attitude towards that Sarah, as Sarah is implying. Um, but to be, but, you know, if, if, if part of the question is, is there a metalinguistic appreciation? I don't think that they're there yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I'm about to ask you something else. And I, you might be the only people who are going to give us the answer that I'm foreseeing coming my way. But the, your daughters refuse to speak Spanish to you or at home or in any particular situation. No, never. Never. No, I see you're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they went through a period where they wouldn't. Oh. Never happened. Ever, ever, ever. Nope. Nope. Um, I don't know. And I don't know why you're, yeah, that's, that is, I mean, in some of my grad classes, I, I talk about that issue and uh, how some students, some kids make a decision, um, whether it's, you know, subconscious or not, but um, that didn't happen um, with them. But, you know, probably Sarah and Lauren, that probably has something to do with that they felt a connection to each other because, right. um, even though they're six months apart, Karina, Karina did do the all, you're almost twin thing when she was raising them. Oh. Same clothes, ostensibly so that if they got lost, they could find the other one. But I think she really had this twins. She had I this think, twin, 
I did it on purpose because I wanted them to connect to each other. So I did dress them the same. Um, you know, they're 10 months apart. So I would dress them this in the same outfit, right? That's what I mean. Um, so that they would see that they were connected because they look more like each other than they do like us, even though they're very different. One is more of the Mayan um, features and the other one has some more of the African features and has curly hair. Um, so they look similar enough more to each other than to us. And so I built on that purposefully. Um, of course, at some point then, you know, that stopped. Um, but in the, in the early years, you know, it was language that tied them together. It was these things that I did purposefully. It was a fact that they look like each other somewhat, you know, they have some of the same features. Um, even though there's some that are distinguishing them. Um, and so I think, you know, that tied all together. I don't ever think that it was, you know, we can't, if, if we don't speak Spanish, we'll get in trouble. I never, ever got the sense that that was the case. Um, or I'm not gonna be able to go to that party if I, you know, decide I want to speak English now. Never, ever did I get that sense that that was going on in their head. Um, and I don't know if it was um, because of the positive tone that we said at home, because, you know, uh, there were people that spoke other languages in our background. It was just what you did um, or something else. So as Spanish professors and linguists, has that informed what you've done at home at all in any specific ways or vice versa? Has your home experience changed what you do at work yeah i would definitely say so that you know that like i was saying the um the part about that that karina knew that input was going to be um really important so um she put that into into effect in in a in a in a major way and it was really obvious you know to me that that it was you know, given as much exposure to the language as possible but you know in in, in, a, in a principled way, you know, because a lot of the literature back then was also saying, um, read to your kids all the time, whether whether they understand it or not, it, it is, is irrelevant and uh, um, that works. So, and then in the, um, you know, um, it's helped me in teaching some of my classes because a lot of the classes that I teach are, are still on second language acquisition. So I'm able to provide a perspective on, um, on that L1 acquisition and, and on the heritage speaker um, acquisition as well, you know, having lived, lived it slightly authentically, right? That's been very helpful. And so I'll build on that. You know, I never was, you know, thinking, oh, I should do that because Long says that, or, you know, back then crashing, right? Or, well, you know, uh, comprehensible input, like Prashen says, never ever was that a part of my thought process it was more like I love these girls I enjoy their company and now we're going to read oh now we're going to play and now we're going to paint and the way that we did that was with Spanish it was never an issue of um, putting into practice any theory that I knew about it the theories that I read about and learned complemented what um, my experiences had been as a child, but never did I, you know, purposefully change what I was going to do. <clears throat> and like Joe, 
I, I don't teach anymore. I'm in administration right now. But when I did teach those classes, I would also readily refer to, you know, things they did and things they said as a way to provide some real examples instead of just making some up. Um, so that was helpful to me as a, as a teacher. So since you have this experience that is unique, uh, if there's anybody out there listening and has a similar situation, the one you guys, you guys have, um, what would be some of the tips or resources that you would share with, with our listeners? especially those who might be in that same situation you guys are in. Yeah, I, I would say that um, you're, you're, you know, if, if it is a, a big obstacle can be um, indirect, um, implicit pressure from family not to go in that direction. Mm. And I think that you have to um, handle that um, politely, um, you know, and, uh, um, and, and, and say, you know, we're going to continue to do this. Um, we, we aren't, we would never talk about you, um, either behind your back or in front of you, um, in Spanish. So, I mean, there are certain fears that, that, that come out that are, that are from all four of our perspectives are probably irrational, um, but they're not irrational to them. Um, and so, um, that would be, um, my, 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 you know, or have a talk with the family members. I, I think that, like I said, having grown up in a very monolingual situation and, ha- and knowing my family, I- I'm pretty sure what some of their reactions might have been if we lived with them, for instance, because we live in Arizona and my family lives all the way back in Iowa. Um, and so we didn't have to, you know, grandma wasn't over every day saying, why are you speaking Spanish to them? What are you saying about me? Nothing. Or what do you, do- what don't you want me to know? You know, you're saying. So I think that's a huge obstacle for people who are in the same situation. As and can us. I just build on that? What I would do when they were visiting, I would talk to the girls in Spanish and say the exact same thing in English. So I would say, ay, mira, vamos a salir ya, ponte los zapatos. Hey, we're going to leave now. Go put your shoes on. And at one point, Joe's sister asked me, do you do that so they'll learn English? And I'm like, no, I do that for you because I don't want you to think that we're saying anything about you or secrets or anything. And that was the way that I handled that. It was, you know, more mental energy, but I thought it was the appropriate thing to do so that, you know, um, you know, Tia Beth or whomever wouldn't be left out of the conversation um, just because I was speaking to them in Spanish. And then they would see, oh, she's just parenting. <laughs> yeah, shoes. Yep. Time to go. Shoes. Um, you know, use the restroom before we get in the car. You know, those kinds of parenting things that I would never say in English. Um, I was just saying, I had completely forgotten about that. I, I, that's exactly right, because we have a couple of colleagues here who are in a situation where like um, um, they're the only Hispanic person in the family. And um, it, it seems that, you know, that there's that overwhelming, you know, pressure to, um, you know, just, you know, leave the Spanish aside because it's some sort of mental obstacle for a lot of people who are observing it, right? It's meaning it's extremely hard for the, for, the, for the relative to sit there and listen to a mother or a father speaking in this unknown language mm-hmm. to their kids. That, that, and it's gotta be recognized, it really does. Um, and, um, you know, because it is an elephant in the room 
and you can't ignore it. Um, but I think sometimes that elephant wins a lot, wins a lot of times. Comes up with my family that they just, oh, really? yeah, they can feel, well, both my husband and I speak Spanish to our daughter, but my parents are, you know, monolingual American. Um, and it is just, yeah, it is just awkward for me, especially to speak Spanish in front of them, but to their credit, they're, you know, mostly fine. <laughs> Yeah, but you said mostly, yeah. Because yeah. So, they feel, so I think more they feel like left out. Like there's a part of Victoria that they can't share or something. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way of putting it. They feel a little, a little bit left out. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. It's almost like you're behind the, you're in another room with the door closed. Yeah, yeah. And so it's up to the parents who are the adults to, to make that work, I think. Because obviously the child can't and the child is you know probably not even aware but it's up to you Lauren as the parent and you Sarah as the parent to navigate that situation as best as you can and it's never going to be perfect it wasn't for us but to navigate that situation so that that parent is uh, understanding that it's a just a minor thing that they can't share with with the daughter or the daughters it's not a big part the fact that they're there visiting and engaged in playtime or at the park that's what counts and that's where the memories will be yeah. built it's not on the language that they spoke that would be my advice no it's, it's very interesting too and I would just add one last thing that I realized how hard that how easy it is for us to say that and how hard it is to do that because, for instance, um, and, and I think all four people here could probably attest to this, is that me even now, I, I'm 59 now. And so when my dad walks into the room, there is still a part of me that says, there is no way I can't do what this man wants me to do. You know, there's, there's still a 7, 8, 10, 12-year-old in there. If he says, you know, stay there, there's a... 90% of me that's going to stay there. Right. And so that's a, you just, you can't ever, it's never goes away. I don't, I don't, I can't speak for Karina. I don't know, but I don't think that that, that that influence ever goes away. And that's really what I'm saying. Right. And so I'll end with some practical tips, which are use that second language, which for us was Spanish, wherever you go, not just at home. So people talk about it as a home language. So yes, it's a home language, but home should not be defined by space. Um, so you're in the four walls that you call, you know, where you live. That's not it. It's wherever you go, you speak the language, read as much as you can. The books are or cost more, but it's a good investment. Buy the books that are written in, especially if you can find them in the dialect that you're teaching them, which for Spanish was, was huge. Um, music, integrate children's songs um, as much as you can, because that's a huge part of it. And then encourage them as they get older to listen to music, not in English. So our girls will listen regularly to music in Spanish. Uh, not even ones that we have uh, played for them, just ones that are popular now. They will go and listen to them. 
And then I think the last piece would be um, to to make sure that the conversations with the children um, mimic how it how those conversations happen in real life. So um, turn taking, how does that happen in, in Spanish? It's different than how it happens in English. So you have to do that. Use the pragmatics that are appropriate of the language you're teaching them. And if 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 that's all natural, then great. Um, it just needs to be not just the words and all that, but all of those pieces that go with, make sure that you are um, using them. Well, thank That's you. Thank you so much for yeah. those wonderful tips. I think they apply to all of us, <laughs> regardless of our situation. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thank yes, you, Joe. It has been a lot of fun. I am so fun thinking about all these questions and, and thinking back. I hope that the information we provided was not too long. You get two linguists talking about language. <laughs> it's hard to make them shut it up. It was perfect. <laughs> no, yeah, it was fun to have both. Thanks for reaching out to us as, as, as people that might be able to have some advice for others. Yeah. All right, well, we're gonna leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate your time and your unique insight into multilingual parenting. We'll be back soon with another episode of Multilingual Mamas. Hasta luego. Ciao. ever have questions for us or questions about the podcast go to home and our website at www.multilingualmamaspodcast.com and click on the link for questions make sure to follow us on facebook and instagram and stay tuned for another episode of multilingual mamas